invite you to take your copy of scripture and turn to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. And this morning, this will be the last message in our series on the Genesis of marriage. Genesis of marriage. So we're going to look at Genesis chapter 3. We're actually going to look this morning at the chapter as a whole, but I'm going to begin by just reading a couple of verses. And so uh, I'll read verse uh, 6 and 7, and you'll find our passage on page 2 and 3, page 2 and 3. So Genesis chapter 3, and I'll read verses 6 and 7 for us. This is God's Word. Let me just, in terms of setting the context, this is Adam and Eve, they're in the garden. This is when they were tempted by the serpent. Verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise... She took of its fruit and ate, and she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Amen. This is God's Word. Well, as we have been going through this series on the genesis of marriage, we have seen that marriage is a really good gift. It's a gift from the Lord. But we also know, even by experience and what we observe around us, that marriage can be really hard. And so, over the last several weeks, we've looked at the goodness of marriage, we've looked at the permanence of marriage, we've looked at the design of marriage, and we've seen that God created man and woman, and He created marriage. And originally, Adam and and Eve knew nothing but perfect fellowship with God, and not only perfect fellowship with God, but they knew perfect love and romance and joy and happiness with one another. They truly experienced and possessed the model marriage. But Genesis 3 reveals that something went wrong, that something went deeply, deeply wrong. And this is what makes marriage hard. And so I want us to look at this this morning. I want us to look at the fall of Adam and Eve, look at their sin, and then I want us to consider this passage, Genesis chapter 3, and the fall in particular through the lens of marriage and family. So what what does this chapter have to teach us about marriage and family? Now as we consider Genesis 3, the main point that we'll see in our passage this morning is that sin distorts marriage, but grace redeems it. Sin distorts marriage, but grace redeems it. So we'll look at three effects of sin, and then we'll see three effects of grace on marriage. So let's look at three effects of sin on marriage, okay? The first effect of sin on marriage that we see in our passage is that sin doubts God's Word. Sin doubts God's Word. Look there in chapter 3, and I'll read for us verses 1 through 5. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, 
For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, as we consider the interaction here between the serpent and Eve, we need to be reminded that just prior to this, God had spoken a very clear command to Adam. So if you just go up a few verses, in chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, we read these words. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now as God has given this command to Adam, notice the tactics that Satan uses in chapter 3, verse 1, to undermine God's command. Satan uses the tactics of doubt, deceit, and denial. So notice, first of all, Satan uses the tactic of doubt. There in chapter 3, verse 1, the serpent says to Eve, Did God actually say? See, he's just placing a little bit of doubt there, right? In Eve's mind and in Eve's heart. Did God actually say? And kind of the, the sense is here, maybe, maybe Eve, maybe Adam remembered wrong. Or you know that command that Adam communicated to you that he had received from God, maybe Adam just made it up. Or maybe Eve, you just thought that's what Adam said. But surely, surely that couldn't be right. And then Satan goes on from there, not only to, to place doubt in Eve's heart, but then Satan moves from doubt to deceit. Notice he says, did God actually say, and then the next thing that Satan says to Eve, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now is that what God said? That's not what God said at all, right? God did not say to Adam and Eve, you cannot eat of any tree in the garden. Go back to chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, and you see there what God had actually said was that, Adam, you can eat of every tree of the garden. You see all these trees and all this wonderful fruit, it's all yours. But there's just one tree you shall not eat of. You see, God's command originally was generous, and it was liberal, but Satan twists it so that it seems stingy and oppressive. Satan says to Eve, Eve, is it true that God has placed you in this garden with all this wonderful fruit to eat, and he won't let you have any of it? Isn't God so stingy? Isn't God so selfish? But then notice that Satan moves from doubt to deceit to then outright denial. So God had clearly said in chapter 2 verse 17, For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. But now in chapter 3 verses 4 and 5, Satan denies and openly challenges God's word. We read in... Chapter 3, verse 4, But the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, my friends, I want us to understand that when the goodness of marriage, or the permanence of marriage, or the design of marriage 
is undermined, is compromised in a marriage, we can always, always, always trace it back to a failure to believe and trust in God's Word. That's what we see here with Adam and Eve. And so we, like Adam and Eve, are tempted to say, did God really say that marriage is good? Because right now it just seems like a lot of hard work and sacrifice. Or we're tempted to say, did God really say what, man, what God has joined together, let not man separate? Did God really say that marriage is to be permanent and enduring and lasting? Because if there's an exit door in this marriage, I need to find it and get out. Or, did God really say that husbands should lead and wives should help? And children are a blessing from the Lord? Because my friends think that's absolutely absurd. And they seem to be doing pretty well. And I've got all these kids, you know, and they're pulling at me. And I've got a spouse to consider. And they seem to be having unlimited freedom and be able to do whatever they please. And then Satan compounds our doubts, right? By whispering to us and assuring us. You know, God gave you that spouse and God gave you those children to punish you. He doesn't love you. He's holding you back. Your spouse and your kids are getting in the way of your happiness. And when this happens in our hearts and in our minds, it doesn't necessarily mean that we leave the marriage. But what can happen is that kind of a a bitterness, a resentment begins to build in our hearts, either towards our spouse or our children or both. And we become increasingly distant and hostile. So this is one of the reasons why it is so critical as individuals and as couples in marriage, that we make the determination that we will build our lives and we will build our marriages on the Word of God. That the Word of God will be the foundation of our lives and our marriages. And how do we do that? Well, we do it by right, right, what we're doing right now, right? We gather together for worship. We go to God's Word. We consider what He has to say to us from His Word. But it can't just stop there, right? It's not just about getting together one time a week. It's about becoming a people of God's Word individually so that I I structure my life and my schedule during the week so that I have time to be in God's Word and understand and know His Word. It means that as a couple, we commit to knowing and loving God's Word together. Of course, this is going to look different in each couple's lives and there's different factors to consider. And we'll never do it perfectly, right? But we have to figure out how to do it consistently and faithfully so that when the doubts and the deceit and the denials of Satan come, we know God's word and we can respond with truth rather than falling victim to his schemes. So the first effect that we see that sin has on marriage is that sin doubts God's word. The second effect that sin has on marriage is that sin rejects God's design. Sin rejects God's design. Look there in chapter 3, verse 6. 
And we read these words. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, verse 8, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then skip down to verse 14 of chapter 3. We read these words. This is when the Lord, as a result of their sin, gives curses to the serpent, to the woman, and to the man. The Lord God said to the serpent, verse 14, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, and in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field, but the sweat of your face, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So we saw actually last week when we considered the design of marriage that uh, there's a particular design for the way in which God created man and woman and the way that he's brought them together in marriage. And, and what we see, especially in chapter 2, is that God has created man and woman to exercise dominion. And, and this is in chapter 1 as well. But God has created man and woman to exercise dominion over creation. In particular, they are to exercise dominion over the animals. And then the husband has been given a responsibility in marriage to lead, and the wife has been given a particular role and responsibility to help. Now notice if you go back to chapter 3, verse 6, that what we see in Satan coming to tempt Adam and Eve is that Satan attacks right at the heart of God's good design for marriage. Because in verse 6, essentially what we see is a complete reversal of God's original design and intent for marriage. Notice this. The man and the woman originally had been called to exercise dominion on behalf of God and to exercise dominion over the animals. But what we see in verse 6 is that the serpent actually approaches Eve. And in approaching Eve, he is questioning the authority of God and he exerts his own dominion over Adam and Eve. So now he is taking a position of authority above them. Did God really say not only that, but the husband is called to lead and protect his wife. But the serpent bypasses Adam, right, and goes straight towards Eve. And when he goes to Eve, we know that Adam was with her when Eve was tempted because the text tells us that. But Adam was not leading and protecting as Eve found herself in a precarious and dangerous situation. Rather, Adam was passively sitting by, watching, observing. You say, well, what could Adam have done? Well, maybe he could have chopped the head of the serpent off, right? I don't know. Or maybe better yet, he could have cited the truth of Scripture to the serpent and rebuked him. But he does neither. And Eve, who is called to help her husband, does not help her husband, but rather leads him into sin. You see, there's a complete reversal of God's good design in marriage. 
Now the serpent, the animal, is exercising dominion over them. Adam is not leading and protecting. He's passively sitting by. Eve is not helping. She's leading her husband into sin. Satan attacks right at the heart of God's good design for marriage. And it's interesting to note here that when they do, when they fall for Satan's schemes and the marriage is affected and corrupted, God's design is still not erased. One way we know that is because when you look at chapter 3, verse 9, when God comes to the garden, even though it is Eve who has sinned first, God does not come looking for Eve. He comes looking for Adam. Why? Because Adam, by the very nature of the role that he has been given to lead in his household, is ultimately responsible. Eve is guilty for her sin. Adam is guilty for his sin. But Eve is responsible. Uh, but Adam is ultimately responsible. So look there in verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Adam, where are you? Adam must give an account. Notice also that later on when God punishes the serpent and punishes Adam and Eve for the sins that they have committed, we see that the consequence for their sins affects their particular God-given roles as husband and wife. So notice that the curse on the woman affects the two areas in which she is particularly called to reflect God's image as a wife. The two areas in which she is particularly called to reflect God's image and uh, in being a wife, we saw this last week, was in the bearing of children and in helping her husband. And notice there in verse 16, it says, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, in pain you shall bring forth children. So the bearing of children is to be uh, an experience of great joy for a woman and still brings great joy to a woman. But here we see in the text that it will now, as a result of sin and the curse, often be marked by difficulty and disappointment. Even as we think of experiences of infertility and miscarriages, it'll be marked by pain and even death. Not only this, not only has the consequences and the curse of sin affected the bearing of children, but as it relates to Eve, it has affected her role as a wife in helping her husband. So notice there in verse 16, it says, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, and pain you shall bring forth children. And then it says this, your desire shall be for, or it could be translated in your text, against your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now what does that mean? Does that mean that the, the woman, that Eve now, will just really, really, really want to be with Adam and love him so much and just want to be with him all the time? I, I don't think that's actually what, what's being said here. And one of the reasons I don't, I don't think that's what's being said is because there's an interesting combination of words here. In chapter 3, verse 16, you see these two words, desire and rule, placed together. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, in the book of Genesis, there's only one other place where those two words are together in a combination. And it's Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. It's just one chapter over. And God is warning Cain in this verse. And God says this to Cain. Sin is crouching at your door. 
Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. There's the combination of those two words. And what what does God mean by that when he speaks these words to Cain? That sin's at your door and its desire is for you. The idea is that, that it wants to master you. It wants to overtake you. And so what we see here in this curse is that Eve had been called to help her husband. And part of that helping is to lovingly and joyfully follow his leadership. But because of sin... She will now have a disposition and inclination to reject that leadership, to exert her own authority, and to seek to dominate and rule. But the curse did not only affect the woman in the areas in which she is to exercise her femininity and being a wife and a mother, but the curse also affected the man. And it affected the areas in which he is particularly to reflect God's image in marriage and family. We see this in verse 16 and 17. So the two areas in particular in which he's to play out his role is to lead his wife and to exercise dominion through his work. And you see there in verse 17 in particular that the work that Adam had been given to do will now be affected by sin. We should say that work in and of itself is not evil, right? I mean, prior to the fall, God had called Adam to work. And work was supposed to be a source of great joy and fulfillment for Adam, a sense of satisfaction as he gave himself to different projects and ambitions and goals and was able to see the fruit and the product of his labor. But now we understand that work is also marked not only by joy, but also by frustration and fatigue and difficulty, disappointment, even at times in certain situations, oppression. And so Adam's work and his role in providing for his family is affected. Not only that, though, but Adam's role in leading his wife is affected. So if you remember last week, we said, what does it mean for a husband to lead his wife in a godly way? It means to lovingly, this is how we defined it, it means to lovingly and sacrificially take initiative for the sake of your wife and your children for their good. But notice what it says here in the passage. If you look back verse 16, as the Lord is speaking to Eve, he says, your desire shall be for your husband, and notice this, and he shall rule over you. And as the rest of the Old Testament and the New Testament reveal to us, the man will not always lead in a loving and sacrificial way, but because of the effects of sin on the man, he will often do so in ways that are ungodly and harsh and inconsiderate and domineering and even at times abusive. And so now you see we have a mess on our hands, right? Sin has affected the man and the woman and the roles that God has given them and the design that he has created for marriage so that she will not want to be led and he will not want to lead or when he does lead, he will be tempted to lead like a jerk and the battle's on, right? And so instead of experiencing the harmony and the oneness and the unity that was intended in God's good design... We butt heads, and we rage, and we fight. So, sin doubts God's word, 
But secondly, sin rejects God's design. Third effect of sin on marriage is that sin forfeits intimacy. Sin forfeits intimacy. Look there in chapter 3, verse uh, 7, and we read these words. This is after they had sinned. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Now, if you remember back in chapter 2, the end of chapter 2, verse 25, we saw the, the, the intimacy that was present in the original marriage, where uh, in verse 25 of chapter 2 we read, and the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. And we talked about the fact that Adam and Eve at this point in their marriage were fully known, each of them were fully known, and they were fully accepted. But here in chapter 3, verse 7, we see that Adam and Eve trade the joy of intimacy For the passing pleasure of sin. And in chapter 3 verse 7 we read. The eyes of both were open. And they knew they were naked. And so guilt and shame entered into the relationship. And and what Adam and Eve realized at this moment is. we, We can't continue to operate like this. We can't continue to go on like this. In which there's so much exposure and vulnerability. We've got to create a different scenario context. In which we can operate given the fact of our nature and our sin and our shame. And so they made, they made loincloths for themselves. They attempted to cover themselves up with fig leaves. And my friends, we've been trying to cover up our guilt and our shame ever since. And this is why we find it difficult in relationships and even in marriage to be open and to be vulnerable and to share ourselves with another. Because there's this inherent fear within us. If I share my heart, if I share my burdens, if I share my struggles, will my spouse understand me? Will they accept me? Or will they file it away to be used against me at a later date? This is what's happening here with Adam and Eve. And notice in particular how it plays itself out in verses 10 to 13. Before there was intimacy, and as a result of the intimacy, they accepted one another and loved one another and received one another. But now that the intimacy has been compromised, they turn on each other and start to blame one another. God comes to Adam and he says to him, who told you that you were naked? And how does Adam respond? Many of you know, he says there, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. So what we see here is that Adam, in response to God's question, he blames Eve. And not only does he blame Eve, he blames God. So Adam before, right, he was all in for Eve. He loved her, he would protect her, he would defend her. And now in a moment's notice, he will throw her under the bus if it saves his hide. Right? Eve made me do it, he says. 
But worse yet, not only does Adam blame Eve, Adam blames God. Do you catch it? Did you see it there in the text? He says to God, the woman whom you gave me, gave me the fruit and I ate. God, if you hadn't given me this woman, we wouldn't be in this mess. And oh, how this plays itself out in marriage today, right? We get married and on our wedding day, man, we're thrilled. We think to ourselves, we share with our family and with our, our friends, this is the best day of my life. God has been so good to me to provide me with this wonderful spouse, this husband, this wife. And then we're married for six months or a year or two years or ten years. And he still doesn't put down the toilet seat. And she still wants me to go shopping with her on Saturdays when the ball game's coming on. And we say, God, what have you done? Why did you get me into this mess? We're not compatible with one another. If you had told me all the challenges that we would have had before we got married, how impossible it would be to live with this person, I wouldn't have never gotten into this thing. And we blame God. Notice what Eve does. Eve's a little better. She blames the serpent. I guess if you had to choose between blaming your spouse or the serpent, it'd be better to blame the serpent. But nonetheless, she still does not take responsibility. Many of you know that my wife and I, Nikki, we have three children. Our youngest child, Tatum, she's a little girl. She's three years old. And uh, when Nikki is homeschooling the kids... Sometimes we'll be in a room together, and Tatum wants to be in the room with everybody, and so she'll be playing with a baby doll in there, and uh, she'll start to get loud as she plays with the baby doll. Maybe she'll be playing, you know, the baby doll's crying or laughing or whatever it is, and I'll say to her, honey, you can be in here and play with the baby doll. That's fine, but you've got to be quiet because the boys are doing their school. She'll say, okay, daddy, and then she'll start playing for a little while, and then she'll be really loud again, and I'll say, honey... I told you you can play with the baby doll, but you've got to be quiet. She says, Daddy, I wasn't loud. The baby doll was. <laughs> and I said, no, Tatum, honey, you were loud. She said, no, it was the baby doll. Now, why did she do that? Because even though she's the cutest little girl in the world, she is a daughter of Eve. And she gets it honest because I'm a son of Adam. And that's what we do as sinners, right? We blame shift. We make excuses. We don't take responsibility. And how many arguments have you been in in your marriage where you realize after a while that like every other sentence is, yeah, but you, yeah, but you, and you realize you're in this cyclical cycle and you're not going anywhere because no one will take responsibility. Let me ask you, in those moments, do you feel like just sitting down and hugging one another and sharing your deepest, darkest secrets? Of course not, right? Because the intimacy has been broken. Instead, we want to shut down. We want to check out. We want to be alone. Sin undermines, forfeits intimacy. 
So we've seen three effects of sin on marriage. Now I want us to shift and see in this chapter three effects of grace on marriage. As we do so, before we look at these three, I just just briefly want to reflect on this question. What was the purpose of the curse that God gave for sin? What was the purpose of the curse? Well, one, we could say that the purpose of the curse is to honor God's justice. It's to honor God's holiness. God had to punish sin. But there's another purpose for the curse. Not only was it to honor God's justice and holiness, but the purpose of the curse was also to make us desperate. The purpose of the curse was to drive us back to God. For us to realize that we had made such a mess of things that there was no way we could make this thing right on our own. We needed another and we needed grace. And the first effect that we see that grace has on marriage is that grace responds to doubt with a promise. Grace responds to doubt with a promise. So the first effect of sin was that sin doubts God's word. But now we see that grace responds to doubt with a promise. Look there in chapter 3, verse 15. And this is where the Lord is speaking a curse to the serpent. And in chapter 3, verse 15, we read, The Lord says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his head. Heal. Now, as many of you probably know, this is the first pronouncement of the gospel in the Bible. In fact, some people refer to it as the proto-gospel, and it's right here in the opening chapters of Genesis. If you see there when it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, the serpent and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring... He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What, what's being said here is that Eve will bear an offspring. And of course, this is a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the serpent will bruise his heel. This is a reference to the crucifixion and death of Jesus. But Eve's offspring, the Lord Jesus, will deal a crushing blow to the head of the serpent. By his death and resurrection from the dead, he will finally defeat Satan and overcome sin and reverse the curse of sin forever. This is what I want you to notice here in our text. Back in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, the Lord had spoken a very clear word to Adam. Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. Now let me ask you, did Adam and Eve believe that word? Did they trust that word? Did they receive that word? No, they doubted it, right? They rebelled against it. So now as we come into chapter 3, and as God speaks this promise in chapter 3, verse 15, what assurance does God have that they will receive this word? That they will believe it? That they will embrace it? And did Adam and Eve doubt this word? Well, we all know the answer to that question. Of course they did. And yet here's the remarkable thing. God still spoke it. Even though they had doubted his word and rebelled against his word and denied his word, God still spoke a word of grace over their lives, over their marriages. And praise God, my friend, 
that the promise of God's word and the promise of his gospel for our lives and for our marriages is not dependent upon us always getting it right. In fact, God knows that we will doubt his word, and yet he still speaks a word of grace and promise into our lives. I hope this is encouraging for you, especially if you're in a tough season, a tough spot in your marriage. If you're a Christian this morning, you can be assured that God speaks a word of promise over your marriage. And this is the promise. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And so wherever you might find yourself in your marriage, let me encourage you, do not settle for a half-hearted leadership. Do not settle for a reluctant helping. Do not settle for a quiet, steady resentment to be present in your marriage. Do not settle for a culture of blame shifting to take over your marriage. Rather, go back to the word again and again and again and believe the promise. Believe the promise that in Jesus there is more grace, there's more power, there's more hope for you and for your spouse and for your marriage to be transformed. And keep confessing and keep repenting and keep believing and watch as God progressively and faithfully transforms you and your marriage for His glory. Grace responds to doubt with a promise. Not only that, but we also see that grace restores God's design. Grace restores God's design. So sin rejected God's design, but this is, this is so wonderful to see. Grace restores God's design. So notice this in uh, chapter 3, verse 16. The Lord spoke to the woman and he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. And this specifically is the part I want us to consider. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And we talked about that a little bit earlier. The curse strikes at God's heart for the design of marriage. And so now there's this conflict. The woman will be tempted to supplant the leadership of her husband. And the husband will be tempted to avoid the responsibility to lead or to lead in a way that's harsh and unkind. And it's interesting that then when we go to the New Testament, when the New Testament authors address husbands and wives and their roles in marriage, it seems like they always go back to these concerns. It's almost like they've read their Bible before. It's almost like they know the Genesis account, and of course they do. Because again and again and again, when they speak to husbands and wives in the New Testament, the New Testament authors go back to these concerns where sin has marred and corrupted us at the very core of who we are in reflecting the image of God and being a husband and a wife as God has designed it. So, for example, what do the New Testament authors regularly say to wives. Ephesians 5, 22 to 23. Paul says, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church. Or Colossians 3, 18. Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. 
Or Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 1, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. And then what do the New Testament authors have to say to husbands, to husbands who now because of sin will be inclined to lead in a way that's harsh and unkind and domineering? Paul says to husbands in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Colossians 3, 28, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. 1 Peter 3, 7, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Do you see what the New Testament authors are doing here? The New Testament authors are reflecting on the redemptive work of Jesus in his death and resurrection, and they are declaring that in Christ, God is making all things new. He's restoring humanity. He's restoring his original creative design. He is making you new. He's restoring and making your marriage new. And so husbands will be inclined to say, listen, it's hard to lead. It's hard to put my wife first. It's hard to love her sacrificially. It's hard to take initiative. It's hard to be kind and tender when I just want to be harsh and short. And wives will be tempted to say, it's hard to help my husband. It's hard to put his interest above my own. It's hard to serve him. It's hard to lovingly respond to his leadership because in all honesty, sometimes he doesn't lead very well. What the New Testament authors are saying is, listen, in the gospel, you've been forgiven for your sins. You've been washed and cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. You've been given a new heart and you've been empowered by the Spirit of God so that God intends to reverse the effects of the curse in your life. He intends to reverse the effects of the curse in your marriage so that that harsh, abrasive husband, by the power of the Spirit working in him, now becomes a tender and loving and gracious leader. And that resentful and unsubmissive wife becomes a gentle and a kind helper. In the gospel, Jesus Christ is going at the very heart of the curse. And he's redeeming it. And he's restoring his image in us. And he's restoring marriage to its original design so that it would reflect the image of God and so that it would reflect the glorious relationship that exists between Christ and his church. And let me encourage you, especially in this modern day, let me encourage you to yield to God in these matters. To trust His grace and allow your marriage to be restored at its very core in the roles that God has given you as a husband and a wife. Don't shy away from it and don't ignore it because our culture despises it. I believe that God has wonderful treasures and surprises for couples who are willing to say, you know what, we don't understand all this. We don't understand what it all means and how it works, but we want to go on this journey with you, Lord, 
to learn and embrace what it means to be a godly servant leader and to be a helpful and submissive wife. And for couples who are willing to say that, there is more than enough grace for your marriage. God will meet you over and over and over again with grace upon grace. Third, grace renews intimacy. So before we saw that sin forfeits intimacy, but now we see that grace renews intimacy. Look there in chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. This is our last point. We may be going a little long this morning, I'm not sure, but this is our last point. Verse 20 we read, The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. So in chapter 3, verse 7, we saw that their eyes were open and they realized that they were naked. And so they do their best to cover themselves with fig leaves. We saw that the intimacy was compromised. But now we notice that God in His grace, although they are attempting to cover themselves, God in His grace provides them with a better cover. And this is remarkable. One of the reasons why it's remarkable is because Adam and Eve don't die. That's grace. You remember back in chapter 2, verse 17, the Lord had warned, the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And in one sense, they did die. They died spiritually. Of course, we know that eventually they would experience physical death. But on that day, the day that they committed sin and rebellion against God, they did not die. And that was grace. But you know what? Another did die. In verse 21, God clothes Adam and Eve with the skins of an animal. And here we have recorded in this verse the first death. And in God's grace, it was not the death of Adam and Eve who deserved to die, but it was the death of another. It was a substitute, a sacrifice that was offered in their place. The animal's blood was shed instead of theirs. And in place of their shame and their nakedness, they were clothed with the skins of the animal. And of course, this is a foreshadowing of the death of the Lord Jesus, who died as a substitute on the cross in our place for our sins. And it's a foreshadowing of the gift of his righteousness so that when we believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, we don't have to stand before God in our sin and our guilt and our shame, but we are covered with the perfect record of Christ's righteousness and obedience so that we're received and accepted by God and intimacy is restored. And you know what this means? This means we don't have to make excuses. You remember when Adam and Eve, when they, they, the, the intimacy was forfeited, what did they start to do? They started to blame shift, right? Make excuses. It's your fault. No, it's your fault. No, it's the serpent's fault and so forth. But if we understand what God has done for us at the cross, if we understand what God has done for us in his grace, we don't have to make excuses anymore. We don't have to put up a front we don't have to shift blame. We don't have to try to justify ourselves and make ourselves look right in the eyes of God or others. We can own it. We can own it. We can say, I'm a sinner and I'm fallen and I was wrong and I'm sorry. And we can do so because we have the confidence that if we do so, we will not be left naked 
and left in our shame and guilt. But atonement assures us that our sin has been paid for. And covering assures us that our guilt has been covered and our shame has been erased. We can be honest with our sin because we know that there will be enough grace, enough grace to receive us and to make us whole again and to restore the intimacy that's been broken. So listen, I mean this. If, if you get the gospel like deep down in you, it will transform the way you interact with your spouse when you sin against them. It should. So that you can come to your spouse now. You don't always have to make excuses, but you can say, listen, honey, I was wrong. I'm sorry. Will you please forgive me? And there it is, right? That's the basis upon which intimacy is restored. Confession, repentance, forgiveness, and grace. Cornelius Plantica, I'll close with this quote, says, quote, Human sin is stubborn, but not as stubborn as the grace of God. And not half so persistent, not half so ready to suffer to win its way. Let me read that again. Human sin is stubborn, but not, ha- not as stubborn as the grace of God, and not half so persistent, not half so ready to suffer to win its way. Praise God that there's hope, there's life, there's potential for vitality and flourishing in our marriage. Because although sin distorts marriage, grace redeems it. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for the persistence and stubbornness of your grace. Father, we pray that it would conquer us that it would conquer our marriages. And, oh God, we pray that we would lay down all arms and receive it. Lord, help us to humble ourselves before you. And, Father, we pray that we would be a people of your word, that we would love your word, we'd build our marriages on your word, that we would trust the promise of your gospel that's revealed to us in in your word. And, Father, we pray that as a result, that we would live out the biblical roles that you have given us in marriage, that we do so with confidence and faith and joy, trusting you. And we pray that we would know the joy and the intimacy and the companionship and the romance of marriage that you intend for us. We thank you, Lord, for your love and grace. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.